And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. The story of Jesus' life, his gospel as we say, can really be divided into two phases. His humiliation and his exaltation. And then within these two stages, or these two phases, we actually break them down into two smaller stages. So there's four stages, two phases, if you will. His humiliation can be broken up into two stages. The first one being his birth, his incarnation. As we covered this at Christmas time just a couple weeks ago, right? As we talked about the Son of Man becoming or the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, which is very much a state of humiliation. When you are the eternal God and you become a creature, you become a human being, that is a, a humbling, an emptying, making yourself low, a humiliation. And then last week we covered the second part of his humiliation, which is his crucifixion. Uh, the book of Philippians says this. It says that he'd emptied himself first by becoming a man, and then he humbled himself a second time by will, being willing to die, even death on a cross. It's one thing for the Son of God to become a human being. It's a whole other thing to then let other human beings kill you as a human being. That is a lowly state for the majesty of the Son of God. And so those are the two primary sta- phase, stages of his humiliation, right? This week, we now begin talking about the next phase, which is his exaltation. There are two stages of his exaltation, and the first one is his resurrection. We have the great privilege this morning to be reminded that the Son of God who died rose from the dead. And the creed, as we just read, actually takes a a, a citation just directly from Scripture when it affirms that according to the scriptures, on the third day, Christ rose from the dead. For the creed, along with the Bible, teaches the resurrection of Christ. Let's look at that. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 through 19 together. First Corinthians 15, Paul has to write to Corinth because there was people in the church claiming to be Christians who denied that there was such a thing as a physical resurrection. So he had to refute this. So we will do 1 Corinthians 15, 1-19. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Thus saith the Lord, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that it was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This bars a reading of God's word. Please be seated. From the time of the Enlightenment, there has been sort of a slow and steady liberalizing of Christianity in the Western world. And I, I, don't, I, I speak right now of a religious liberalism, not a political one, even though they're oftentimes tied together. But religiously speaking, the Christian faith in the West has been liberalized slowly more and more, really since the Enlightenment. And one of the most tragic effects of a kind of liberalized Christianity is the attempt to take the miraculous out of our faith. There are people who are so embarrassed by the Bible's many supernatural works which defy science and defy scientists that they would rather for respectability, just reinterpret those and take the supernatural out of them. They turn these works into parables and stories with a moral emphasis, and they make them metaphors and spiritualize everything. And they do that with Christ's own resurrection. There are actually many, many people out there who claim to be Christians who will nonetheless say that the resurrection simply means that Christ's spirit went to heaven, even though his body remained in the tomb. And they have some kind of moral reason behind the resurrection, how it proves that love cannot be conquered or something like that. And and, and unfortunately, it's not 20th century liberalism that alone teaches that. There were even heretics who used to teach something similar to this, though their motivations were different. Um, There were many heretics in the first and second centuries who believed that Jesus didn't have a true body. And so if he didn't have a true body, then he can't really have a true resurrection. So they also denied a kind of bodily resurrection. But it must be stated that Christ's resurrection is presented in Scripture, and therefore secondarily in the Creed, as a true bodily resurrection. And this is actually emphasized in the text that we just read. Look at verses 4 through 8 with me. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Certainly the very concept of the word resurrection really implies a bodily resurrection. Right? If someone's soul merely goes from the body into heaven, that's not really a resurrection. Right? A resurrection was something that was dead is brought back to life. If the soul never dies but just passes into a new phase, that's not really death, which means it's not really resurrection. So the very word resurrection really implies a bodily one. But in case you're not okay with implications, Paul makes it very, very clear that Jesus' resurrection was bodily because he appeared The same people who saw his body die, the same people who saw his body get buried, saw his body alive again. 
This was not some spiritual resurrection or some metaphor for love triumphing over evil. This was a real bodily resurrection. He appeared to his disciples. And, and, and his appearances were very, very clear that it was a true and real body. My favorite example of this is in the Gospel of John. You don't have to turn there. I've got it on the screen. This is what we famously call the story of Doubting Thomas. Half of the disciples have seen the resurrected Christ. And they go and they tell to Thomas. And Thomas says, unless I can see him and touch him, I refuse to believe. So Jesus says, fine. I'll give it to you. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Right? Christ willingly retained the scars of his crucifixion, something he should not have done in glory. But he willingly retained them just so that he could prove that this was the same body that was crucified and that this was in fact a real bodily resurrection. However, I, I, my guess is that most of you probably don't need a lot of convincing of this. So now that we've sort of stated it, I think it's fair for us to just accept that. And let's really now dive into what the creed actually says about the resurrection. The bodily part is implied, but the creed gives us a few things that we need to look at in Christ's resurrection. First, it tells us that it was on the third day. And then it tells us it was in accordance with Scripture. And if you remember, this whole section was begun by saying what Christ did for us men and for our salvation. So the resurrection was on the third day in accordance with Scripture and for our salvation. So those are really the three things I want us to focus on today. So let's look at the first one, that Christ was resurrected on the third day, which is stated for us in verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. So let's stop there. The fact that Christ rose on the third day, which is stated obviously here and then in the creed, believe it or not, has caused a lot of unnecessary anxiety among Christians. Because if you do the math, he actually was not in the tomb for three days. At least not in the way that we think of that. It's important to understand that when we say Christ was resurrected on the third day, that he was dead for three days, we are not making a literal mathematical statement that he was in the tomb for a full 72-hour period. As a matter of fact, he was literally in the tomb for about half that. Friday afternoon to Sunday morning is about 36 hours, give or take the specifics. And so this has led some Christians to posit a theory that Christ was actually crucified on a Wednesday and that he rose on a Saturday night and that his empty tomb was merely found on a Sunday morning. But there is no reason to adopt that theory. First and foremost, the Bible is very, very clear that Christ was murdered the day before the Sabbath. We know that he was murdered on a Friday. And the scriptures are additionally very, very clear that he resurrected on the first day of the week. So we know he was crucified Friday afternoon and he rose Sunday morning. The reason, though, we don't have to panic is because the expression in, to the Hebrew people in the first century, three days, was merely what we call a Hebrew idiom for three consecutive calendar days. 
It was not like a literal 24-hour period. It was anything that took, took place over three calendar days could rightfully be called three days. And there's a lot of examples of this in Scripture. So, no, Jesus was not dead for 72 hours. But he was dead on Friday. He was dead on Saturday. He was dead on Sunday and then rose on Sunday. He was dead for three consecutive calendar days. Jesus resurrected on the third day. Now, that sort of raises the question, though, why this 36-hour window? Why three days? Why is that so important to the creed and to the Bible and to God? And I think a full answer to that is probably beyond the scope of my sermon today. It probably involves a lot of, like, numerology and looking at the significance of numbers in the Bible, and uh, we're not going to break into all that today. But I want to give you just some of my own personal, I'll admit, this is, this is somewhat speculative and somewhat conjectural, so you don't have to accept this. But I think you'll find it interesting as to why I think that the three-day window was what God ordained for his son. And I think the three-day window sort of protects us from two equally dangerous scenarios. The fact that he was in the tomb for three days uh, helped establish and, and, and solidify that he truly was dead. Uh, in other words, there are actually people today who they, don't, they do not believe in Christianity, they do not believe in God, and... So they have to do the very, very difficult thing of trying to make sense of the overwhelmingly strong historical evidence and attestation that we have to Jesus' resurrection. It is an unbelievably strong historical case. So what are they going to do with all of this evidence? And they've proposed a number of theories. And one of the theories is called the resuscitation view, that he never actually died. Just so much blood loss, a guy's bound to pass out, right? You can't lose that much blood and stay with it. So he passed out. They thought he was dead. They took him off the cross, and then he came to. But that his body was in the tomb for three days clearly nullifies that view, right? If, if Jesus resurrected an hour after his death, then we probably would think, well, maybe he never actually died. Like, maybe this guy just passed out. He was, in other words, what I'm saying is he was dead long enough to know he was surely dead. He was dead. He was in the tomb for three days. He was dead. There's no resuscitation happening here. And keep in mind, this also fails to account for everything else the Bible says about him having a spear stuck through him. I mean, they, they very clearly proved that he was dead. So I think that's why the length of the long length. But why, why the short length? Why not a week? Why not a month? Why not a year? Right? Like, why three days? And I think we're given a slight indication of this and one of the um, prophecies that we have about the resurrection in the Old Testament. So there's a psalm that prophesies the resurrection that Peter preaches from, that he quotes in the book of Acts. And here's what the psalm says. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. This was a psalm that David wrote, and so the Jews, before Jesus came, they all thought that this was about David. That David is the Holy One who will die and go to Hades, which is the place of the dead, but God will not abandon him there or let him see corruption. And they thought it was about David. But Peter takes this psalm up in a sermon and basically says, this can't be about David. And how do we know that it's not about David? Because he says in the sermon, because his tomb is still with us today. He's been dead for a very, very, very long time. He was abandoned to Hades and his body did see corruption. There wasn't much left of David's body by the time Peter was preaching the sermon. I'll tell you that right now. So this isn't about David. And so who is it about according to Peter? And it's about Jesus. This is what Peter says. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter asserts that Christ's body was not dead long enough to begin any significant decay or corruption process. So that's why the three days. Now you could keep asking why, why, why. I think it was probably just a sign of honor to Christ. I think because Christ fulfilled his father's will, God did not allow him a further state of humiliation. Right? He's now in a state of exaltation, not a state of humiliation. So he's not going to allow his body to rot and corrupt and decay. That's just my theory. But essentially what we do know is that Christ was crucified for three days. He was dead for three days. which He rose on the third day, which means that he was... In the grave long enough to be dead, but in the grave short enough to not see corruption. That's the importance of the three days. If you have different theories about it than, than I do, then that's totally fine. But we need to affirm what the Bible teaches was that he was dead for three days because he rose on the third day. But that's not all the creed says about his resurrection. It was not on the third day only, but it was also in accordance with the scriptures. Christ resurrected on the third day. Christ resurrected in accordance with the scriptures. Let's see that again in verse 4. <clears throat> that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so we are told that Jesus' crucifixion, or forgive me, his resurrection was actually in the Old Testament. It was prophesied and taught there. What he did, rising from the dead, was in perfect accordance with what the Old Testament said. This was an important thing to Jesus. He made it very, very clear on multiple occasions that his gospel is first found in the Bible. Right? He says in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, admittedly, other than the Psalm that we just looked at from Peter, which prophesied that God's anointed one would not be abandoned to Hades or see corruption. There's not a lot of really explicit prophecies of the resurrection in the Old Testament. right? You're, you're not going to find a verse that says, by the way, one day a man named Jesus from Nazareth is going to die and rise on the third day. But if you read your Bible, if you read your Old Testament the way Jesus read it, that you will find that there are an incredible amount of non-explicit ways that the scriptures do in fact teach and prophesy the resurrection of Christ. And the book of Hebrews calls these non-explicit prophecies types and shadows. There are types and shadows of the resurrection all throughout the Old Testament. But this raises a question in and of itself. Why does this matter? Like, wouldn't Jesus' resurrection from the dead be significant and important whether the Bible taught it or not? Like, isn't this just an amazing thing by itself? Like, why is it important for Jesus and the Bible and the creeds to say that this resurrection was in accordance with the scriptures? And I think the reason that the biblical nature of Christ's resurrection matters is because it's the revelation of scripture that provides the explanation as to what the resurrection means. I'll never forget one time I was listening to a pastor debate this very well 
a very famous, outspoken journalist, and he was not a Christian, not, a, not he was an atheist, and they were debating. And he was talking about Christians will a lot of times say things like, I believe something because Jesus did and he rose from the dead. Like, why do you believe the Old Testament? Well, because Jesus did and he rose from the dead. And he was critiquing that, saying, that doesn't mean anything to me. If, if I'm on a bus with somebody and they come up and, and they say something that I disagree with and they go, by the way, I was once was dead, but now I'm alive again. He goes, that doesn't mean your argument's true. That doesn't mean your reasoning is sound. What does it matter to me that some guy rose from the dead? Why does it matter that some Jewish guy rose from the dead 2,000 years? If Jesus' resurrection is not in accordance with Scripture, it's, it's just a crazy thing in history. But what significance does that have for us? That's what the Scriptures do. The Scriptures teach and explain and provide the foundation as to why the resurrection even matters and how it applies to us. In the same chapter, I think Jesus says this very thing. I've emphasized it for you. Look at what he says also in Luke 24. Some of those, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So the disciples have encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, but they don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus asked them, why are you guys so sad? And they're like, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard that our Savior was crucified? That's why we're sad. They said, but something interesting happened. Apparently, the tomb is empty. We don't get it. The women went and saw it. So we're trying to figure this thing out. And how does Jesus respond to them? O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures tried to teach these men that the death and resurrection of Christ was a necessary thing. That it needed to happen. That it should have happened. He's telling them that scripture is where we learn what the resurrection is, why it happened, and why that matters. That was true of the Old Testament, and it's certainly true now of the New Testament. This is why it is so important for us to keep the resurrection in its theological foundation. It did not just happen in a vacuum. It was not just a raw display of power, but it was a, something with theological significance. Jesus prophesied that it would happen. He told them why it would happen, and then it was fulfilled. And the beautiful thing about that, to go back to that first question I posed, this is why Scripture and the resurrection have this beautiful relationship. It's a reciprocal relationship where the one simultaneously supports the other. They mutually reinforce one another, right? So the scriptures provide the meaning and the reason for the resurrection. And the fact that the resurrection happens validates those scriptures. So yes, it is true that we can trust everything Jesus claimed about himself. We can trust everything that Jesus ever said because of his resurrection. It vindicated all of his claims. The Apostle Paul actually says something uh, very similar to this. Saying in, in Romans that Paul, a servant... Of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is bringing up this reciprocal nature here. You know what the resurrection means because of the scriptures teaching you. But now that it's actually happened, you can turn back and have great confidence in the scriptures and in what Jesus said. We believe Jesus because he rose from the dead. So the resurrection very much gives us a further hope to trust God's word. 
Peter himself says this very thing. He was foreknown before the foundation, oh, forgive me. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The resurrection vindicates God's scriptures. It vindicates God's claims. So now you can have a stronger faith and hope in God because he did what he said he would do. So they mutually reinforce one another. Scripture interprets the resurrection and the resurrection validates scripture. So that's why it's important for us not just to affirm that he was resurrected on the third day, but that he was, did so in accordance with the scriptures. But that brings us to something very, very important, our third and final point, which is that what did this resurrection accomplish? What do the scriptures say it did then? And according to the creed, it is part of God's plan of salvation. It is what Christ has done for us men and for our salvation. So we have to ask the question, is this true? Is the resurrection necessary for our salvation? And the Apostle Paul certainly believes that to be the case. Look at verses 14 through 19 with me again. And if Christ has not been raised, so here's our hypothetical. Let's hypothetically assume for the moment that Christ did not raise from the dead. We know he did, but let's just assume that he didn't. What are the consequences of that? And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. I think it's pretty clear to the Apostle Paul that without the resurrection we're not saved. We're still in our sins. We perish and our faith is in vain. And we've wasted our lives. That's how important the resurrection is. These words literally cannot be taken too seriously. You can't take these words too seriously. So while the resurrection does vindicate the theology of the cross, I want to say very clearly that it does more than that. If the only point of the resurrection was just to merely vindicate the promises of God, to vindicate what the cross did for us, then it would be possible to be saved even if Christ didn't raise from the dead. We just wouldn't know it. Right? If Christ stayed dead, then we, we could theoretically still say, well, the cross saved us, but he rose, so I don't know. I mean, in other words, here's what I'm saying. Someone could come up to you and say, I'm going to die for your sins, and then they die, and you never see him again. Did they? I don't know, maybe. So it is, it is true that the resurrection, like I said, it vindicates the scriptures, it vindicates Jesus' claims, it vindicates all that he said, but it does more than that. Because if all it is is vindication, then we would be saved by the cross alone. He could have stayed dead and we would just not know that we were saved. But as Paul says, the cross is more than just like knowledge and certainty. It actually accomplishes salvation. If he has not been raised, you're still in your sins. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ does absolutely nothing for you if he doesn't rise from the dead. And that is an audacious claim. And so how do we understand this then? I thought, I thought the cross saved me, but now you're telling me the resurrection saved me. Well, we can't break it down. Generally speaking, you don't want to break it down. The general position of the Bible is to just 
to just think that you are saved by the fullness of the gospel. You are saved by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That's what saves you. And we don't actually need to like parcel it out, so to speak. But because of texts like this, it can be helpful at times to do that. And so here's what I think is the most helpful way to sort of understand the role of the crucifixion and the resurrection in our salvation. When we think of the crucifixion, we want to think of something being taken away. While when we think of the resurrection, we want to think of something being added. The cross took something away, and the resurrection added something. The cross is what nullified your sins. It canceled your sins. It took your sins away. But salvation, according to Scripture, is more than the forgiveness of sins. The fullness of salvation, the fullness of the glory that God has waiting for us is found beyond forgiveness, but in a total transformation of who we are, of eternal life and glory and holiness. And those are things that the resurrection supplies to you. The cross took your sins away, but it's the resurrection that imparts life to you. I think Paul is saying something very similar to this in Romans 4.25. Jesus our Lord was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered to take away sins and then he rose to make us righteous. So from this we can see what I just said that yes, salvation requires two things, forgiveness and and restoration. The cross supplied the grounds for forgiveness while the resurrection provides the power of restoration. It secures your life and your righteousness. Our baptisms, by the way, actually symbolize this perfectly. Paul says later on in Romans, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For us to be saved requires both a death and a resurrection. Our old sinful selves must be crucified. They must be killed. And that's what's symbolized when we go under the water. You're being buried in the ground. You're dead. But salvation doesn't stop in the ground. You come up to new life. And Paul explicitly says it is the power of Christ's resurrection that causes us to walk in newness of life. Your holiness, your restoration, it comes from Christ's resurrection power. We are both crucified and raised again in salvation. And here's the kicker. We cannot do these things on our own. You cannot crucify. You don't have the authority to die for your own sins and you don't have the power to raise from the dead. We have neither ability nor authority to do these things. But glory to God, Jesus has provided both of them for us. When we believe in him, we join in with his death and we join him in his resurrection. Our sins are nailed to his cross and then our new life comes to us through his resurrection. So let me try to make it very, very clear. I'll move the slides. All of this is our reminder of how our salvation comes to us through our union with Christ. Salvation is not like a trinket. Like, okay, you went through the right steps, you, did the, you said the right thing, you got baptism, so here's this thing I'm giving to you. It's not like this thing outside of God that he gives us. It's not even a special status. Rather, Christ is salvation. He is where sins were crucified, and he is the one who rose from the dead and lives. So the only way to have a crucifixion And the only way to have resurrection is to be Jesus or to be so united to him that he imparts those things to you. 
So we want to think of salvation more as participation. We are participating in Christ's salvation. By our faith, we are unified with Christ. And once we are unified with him, he imparts these things to us. He gives us his sacrificial death, and now he gives us his resurrected life. And so the resurrection, believe it or not, is actually something that you have already begun in Christ. It's not yet been completed. That's going to happen on Judgment Day when we receive our new bodies. But we are already in a state of resurrection. We have been raised and we are being raised. We call this in theology, the fancy word is sanctification. We are being made holy and it's coming to us through Christ's resurrection life. It is the resurrected Christ who through his spirit lives in us and imparts to us this life that allows us now to be transformed. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christ is in us and he is transforming us, resurrecting us, and the final culmination will happen when we, like him, receive our new bodies. I think we can end with a passage. If you really want to see just how significant this participation with the resurrected Christ is. I think we can see it in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's turn there together. Ephesians chapter 2. Just a couple books over from 1 Corinthians. Ephesians chapter 2. Let us read verses 1 through 10 together. Well, I will read if you will follow along. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the beginning of that? We were spiritually dead. We were spiritually not alive. We were dead in our sins. But in Christ, with Christ, God has made us alive. You have already been resurrected and you've already started that. So much so that we are so unified with Christ. Let me ask this. Where is Christ right now? We'll get a little ahead of us in the creed. Where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And you are united to him. So where does that make you? Where are you? You're you're already in heaven. 
That's what Paul says. We have already been raised up. There's, the, the, the idea here is that this is this inevitable thing so we can speak of as a past and it's something that's already begun. We've been resurrected and we're also simultaneously in resurrection process. As Christ continues to feed us his resurrection life, as we continue to be united to him by faith, we continue to drink from his salvation. We drink from his resurrected life and more and more grow into our resurrected life, which is completed on that final day when we will literally, physically, and finally reign with Christ. All glory be to Christ. He will rule and reign and we will forever sing as we have been seated with him and raised in him. All glory be to Christ. And so I hope you see in conclusion just how important the resurrection is. That it was on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, but most importantly, it was for your salvation, which is why we must believe it. As the Apostle Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.